0: First Kings, chapter three.
1: Then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. It happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. When I arose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had borne. Then the other woman said, "'No, for the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son.' But the first woman said, "'No, for the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son.' Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, "'The one says, "'This is my son who is living, and your son is the dead one.' And the other one says, "'No, for your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one.' The king said, "'Get me a sword.' So they brought a sword before the king. The king said, Divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, He shall neither mine nor yours defied him. Then the king said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice.
0: O Lord God, we note your wisdom. And how, Lord, we have access to that wisdom by way of uh, your church. God, the wisdom and power of God is known and felt and is here to benefit us as, Lord, we have disputes, as we have grievances with one another, with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, God, I pray that you would, uh, Lord, humble us to hear how we may be challenged with uh, the things, the ways that we thought were solutions to our disputes. And, Lord, and now we see that Maybe we were lacking in knowledge. So God, I pray that you would inform us tonight from your word of how we are to handle disputes within the church. That God, uh, we would know and and feel and benefit from your wisdom today. Um, Just as we saw ages ago that your wisdom was on display in King Solomon. That God, we would see the wisdom on display with others And mature believers that help us through uh, disputes, trivial cases that pop up, that flare up in your body, because we know we are sinners turned saints. And yet we still toil and strive in our sin, and things will come up. And so, God, would you benefit your church tonight? Would you bless your bride with the way forward uh, when it comes to things of this matter? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get started with tonight's sermon, I, I need to let you guys know of something. Uh, I'm taking Alex Strickland to court. Uh, yes, I'm suing Alex over a very expensive Bible commentary. Um that was near and dear to me. Uh, it was actually a commentary signed by Charles Spurgeon, um, the Prince of Preachers, Preachers himself. It was uh, very dear to me, uh, meant a lot, and I think it means a lot to him now because he refuses to give it back. So I'm taking him to court. Uh, our court date is tomorrow, so if you guys could be praying for, for me, this is uh, it's weighing, really weighing on me, but uh, just just pray for me. Don't Do me a favor, don't try to get involved because I don't think that you have what it takes to handle this dispute. Um, frankly, I don't think any of you can handle it. It's better if we just go to h- court and let them handle it, uh, handle this matter between us. I hope you understand. Um, so with that being said, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 uh, say this. When one of you has a grievance against one another, another, Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father. Thank you for your grace that has been known to us in Jesus by the Spirit that you have given us. I pray now that you would speak to our hearts that we would know and feel and benefit from your wisdom here in the church that you have given us to access. and that, God we would be able to apply this truth to our lives to see it fleshed out amongst us. God, would you bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm not taking Alex to court. As you might have guessed, there is no Spurgeon-signed commentary. If I did have that, I doubt I would loan it to Alex. (laughs) It should be absurd to us that I would take a dispute like that to a human court in order to secure justice in being wrong. It's absurd. That is Paul's point in this text, is the absurdity behind it. He would rather us seek justice in the church. And that's our sermon title for this evening, Seeking Justice in the Church. Seeking Justice in the Church. Uh, Verse 1 makes it clear that believers will have grievances against one another. So what do we do when that happens? Well, some believers were inclined to take their woes to human court rather than to the church. Uh, this response to the grievance is a daring one. All right? Paul says, does he dare go to law? We dare not. So tonight, I want to give to you five reasons to seek justice in the church. Five reasons to seek justice in the church. When it comes to disputes, Christians must seek justice within the church because I'm going to give you all five reasons and then we're going to kind of walk through them. First, the church is filled with saints. Second, saints will judge the world and angels. Third, the world cares nothing for the church. Fourth, saints have the wisdom to handle disputes. And then fifth, it is shameful, sinful, and self-defeating to seek it elsewhere. We'll walk through those one by one. But before we dive into these reasons, I need to define for us this word disputes. These are trivial cases, is what the text says, that are being taken before unrighteous judges. The word fraud or defrauded is used throughout this passage so we can safely assume that these are these disputes are more civil than criminal and there, that is an important distinction paul is not prohibiting christians from ever going to court against another christian paul is addressing disputes related to money or property rather than criminal cases which fall under the di- jurisdiction of the state It is important for us to make this distinction because the church must not stand between victims of criminal behavior and the authorities who God has ordained to bring about justice in those instances. And we see this spelled out for us in another place where Paul, the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's Romans 13, verses 1 through 4. It's not on the screen, so you'll have to listen carefully. Romans 13 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. the doer. If you don't understand this distinction between civil and criminal, trivial pers- disputes and criminal cases, what I'm about to commend to you is going to be very upsetting to you for the wrong reasons and all the wrong ways. As a leader of the church, it is not my desire to ever cover up criminal behavior. In fact, we as a church are bound by law to report some criminal behavior. In fact, we as a church, uh, every, every camp outrageous, we go through a training on how to spot and report child abuse because we know that that's out in the world. And when we welcome little children, we want to take good care of those children. So if we see, for instance, cigarette burns on the arm of a child, we have to report that. We are bound by law, and so we do not hide that. So please hear me. I am commending to you what I see the Apostle Paul commending to us in this passage. When it comes to disputes, trivial cases, Christians must seek justice within the church. So with that, this first reason is that the church is filled with saints. The church is filled with saints, And we get that from verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, we started this whole sermon series with a sermon called, Wait, I'm a Saint? And we found out that if you are a born-again Christian, yes, you are a saint. We learned that saints are united together in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are the ones who have received grace and peace of our God. And we give thanks to him for that multifaceted grace that bears fruit in the form of speech in knowledge and spiritual gifts. And that's important for what we're going to see Paul say about the church in Corinth. Saints are supposed to experience fellowship with each other and with our Lord Jesus Christ. And when they don't, they're supposed to work it out within the church. Paul reminds them of who they are as saints in the last few verses of this passage. Verses 9 through 11, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you. They were. Why does does Paul list these out for the church in Corinth? Because these are the things that they were dealing with. This is their sin history right here. They were sexually immoral. They were idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. But not anymore. They are saints. Paul reminds them what makes them saints. They were washed. Washed by the blood of Jesus. Their sins had been Atoned for and forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And they had shown this spiritual reality by physically being baptized, going under the water and up from the water to show that they had died to self with Jesus and were risen to walk in the newness of life that he offers them. They were washed, they were sanctified. They were consecrated. They were made holy and are continually being made more holy, more into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. And then they were justified. This is that they were declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ was imputed to them so that when the when God the Father looks at them, you know what He sees? He sees the saving, finished work work of his son, Jesus, and accepts them. That's the gospel. They had received the gospel. They were saints. I don't assume everyone in this room is a born-again believer in Jesus. Not, Not all of us are saints. You may call yourself a Christian, but if you haven't truly repented of your sins and put your trust in the saving work of Jesus, then you are not saved. You are not a saint. And according to this text, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. I do not say that to heap judgment upon you. It brings me no joy to say that. It's just a matter of fact. Paul makes it clear that it is possible for people to be deceived. Is that not what he says? Do not be deceived. You cannot toy around with your sin and follow Jesus. You can't. The good news is that God invites you to inherit His kingdom. If you would turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, He will right every wrong, He will provide cosmic justice. The sin that separates you from your Creator will be forgiven and forgotten, and you will have everlasting and abundant life in Jesus. Would you pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins and tell Him that you believe that what His Son did on the cross and through the grave is enough to atone for your sins? to save you from your sin, it will be the greatest decision you ever make with your life. You will be a different person when you make that decision. And if you do make that decision tonight, would you let me know? Because I'd love to pray for you personally. Pray with you personally. Our second reason to seek justice in the church, is that saints will judge the world and angels. We see this in verses 2 through 3. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? This is New information to some of us. Paul's like, do you not know? We're like, no, I did not know that I would one day judge angels. (laughs) Paul compares this misstep in pursuing justice to a future reality. The saints will one day judge the world. And this will evidently be a substantial responsibility, likely in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, Paul is making an argument from the greater to the lesser here. If the saints will one day judge the world, they should be competent enough to judge the trivial cases of our present age. And then again, Paul compares it with another spiritual reality in the future. The saints will judge the angels. Paul gives no further explanation for this, and we need not go looking for one. But it is important to note that humans are made in the image of God, whereas angels are not. When we as saints will put on our fully redeemed, imperishable bodies in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be clearly and visibly, uh, we will outrank our angelic allies in God's creation. It'll be apparent. Along these lines, it's worth stating, when we die, we do not become angels. I know that may be a shock to some of you, but we've all seen our friends Post some bad theology on Facebook when they have a loved one pass away. Might go something like this. So glad so-and-so got her wings. And that idea is not from Scripture. It probably originates in their imagination or the imagination of somebody else. Uh, We do not become angels when we die. We become something far greater. The Apostle Paul definitively states that we will one day judge angels. So we in the church should be able to handle brothers and sisters in Christ who get into a dispute. It's that simple. The third reason we should seek justice in the church is that the world cares nothing for the church. And that doesn't come to a shock to any of us. Verse 4 says, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Uh, Paul concentrates on a third issue in the church here, right? He's talked about dealing with divisions around teaching personalities. He's handled that a little bit. Uh, And then he gets to this this one case, uh, last chapter, where a guy had romantic relationships and everything that that entails uh, with his stepmother. And so he talks about the pride that they had as a church, including someone like this, into their fold. And he handles that. And then he moves on to this issue where Christians are taking each other to court. And his concern is that they are taking these cases to authorities in the world who don't care anything about the church or her well-being. I mean, you tell me, where would you experience more care and understanding? Bellevue Baptist Church or 201 Poplar? The Young Adults Ministry or People's Court? The Office of Andrew Cross or the Courtroom of Judge Judy? Don't be so quick to answer that last one. You're just another disgruntled citizen in the eyes of the court. Whereas Here in the church, you are an image bearer of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus and worthy of all dignity and all respect. It's not even a contest. We don't just care about you as an individual. We care about the whole body of believers of whom you are one. And we exist for the same purpose, to worship God and glorify Him. The fourth reason, to seek justice in the church. Saints have the wisdom to handle disputes. I love this point. Saints have the wisdom to handle disputes. We see this in verses five and six. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Paul mocks the whole church in Corinth, it would seem. It's ironic, really, especially if you've been with us through this whole series. You know the church in Corinth made a huge deal about their own wisdom, the wisdom of man. And Paul helps them kind of see and weigh that, gauge that, compared to the wisdom of God and finds it lacking. And here again, he finds it lacking as their wisdom fails to handle the most trivial cases between brothers and sisters. He points out the irony to shame them, which goes to show you that not all shame is bad. Paul's aim is to produce a feeling of shame in them, not put them to shame in front of others. And there's a difference, and that's important. The feeling of shame is meant to humble them and send them seeking for legitimate wisdom of God in the church. He isn't embarrassing them to make himself seem all high and mighty. That's not the apostle Paul. Much like last chapter he's evoking an accurate emotion within them. Right? Last chapter he said instead of including this guy who's in sin you should be mourning that there is one among you with such sinful behavior. He's trying to get them to an accurate emotion. In the same same case, he's saying, look, you should be ashamed that y'all are going to human courts with your disputes when they have access to the wisdom of God in the church body and they're missing. Saints have the wisdom to handle disputes. It isn't their own wisdom, but the wisdom of God. And this is why I had Amanda read the account of Solomon's wisdom. Right? Because I don't know if you caught that last sentence. It reads this. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. That is... Something in the Old Covenant that, man, comes right into the New Covenant with the church. Does it not? God gives leaders in the church for this very purpose. He has mature believers in the church who have the spiritual gift of wisdom in order to bring about justice in the church. But so often their gifts go unutilized as people handle their disputes in unhealthy ways that do not Please God. Their disputes go on to fester and infect the two parties involved, causing an implosion of sorts. Paul emphasizes that these are brothers. He says, brother goes to law against brother. And it shows the ridiculousness of taking a family squabble to a human court. We will do anything to each other if we fail to see each other as brothers and sisters. And that should scare us. Which leads to our final reason to seek justice in the church. It is shameful. It is sinful. And self-defeating to seek it elsewhere. We see that in verses 7 and 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. The cost for seeking justice in the world is far too great. We've already noted how shameful it is. Paul infers here that it is also sinful. He accuses them of wronging and defrauding one another, which is sin, but not just any sin. It is sin against a family member. Their wrongdoing is significant because, as he will go on to say right after this, that wrongdoers, the unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God. If that weren't enough... Paul also says the church is defeating herself when her members have lawsuits against one another. According to Paul, it would be better to suffer wrong or be defrauded than to take a church issue to human court. So where does that leave us? What do we do? Well, Our main point for tonight is that when it comes to disputes, remember trivial cases, When it comes to disputes, Christians must seek justice within the church. When it comes to disputes, Christians must seek justice within the church. Now, last week, uh, I, I gave you some steps on how to confront someone who was in sin, and that has somewhat to do with this. That's, I mean, that's why one passage comes over the other, and, and in the flow of Paul's thought, he goes tackles how to confront somebody in their sin, and then he goes into, "All right, what about disputes?" And so, I don't want to give you steps this time. I want to kind of answer some questions that you may have uh, with these, with this point in mind. So, the first question that you may pose rightfully so, is how can I tell I have a need for justice? How can I tell if I have a need for justice? That's a valid question because no two disputes are alike, right? Some uh, outweigh the others. And so well, my answer to that question would be, how angry are you, right? How can I tell I have a need for justice? You're angry. Now, I don't know what you know about the the emotion of anger, but anger typically bubbles up within you due to some sense of injustice, that you have been wronged. Um, Years ago for a a spotlight we did, um, I used anger as an illustration. I kind of told you about uh, a time when somebody pulled out in front of me right? And anger bubbled up. I had no control over that, right? Somebody pulls in front of you, you have no control over that emotion that flares up, but you do have a say over how you respond to that emotion, right? And there's faith-filled response, and there's a sinful response. The faith-filled response, the choice I made was to let the person go in front of me. There There was a simple way I could have responded, right? Sometimes we choose that, but not that day, right? What do you do when anger bubbles up inside you, so something has wronged you. Somebody has wronged you. And you choose what to do with that. All right? Who do I go to about the dispute? It's probably your follow up question. Again, great question. You guys are asking great questions tonight. Good job. And my answer to this would be mature believers. I would say probably steer clear of some of your immediate friends. Probably seek wisdom in those who have experienced a lot more life than you and your friends. I can think of no better examples than our life group teachers. There's a reason they are here in our ministry on Saturdays and Sundays, and that is to invest in young people, helping them work through problems because we all have them in a way that brings God glory, that pleases Him, that are faith-filled responses, not sinful responses. And so you can seek out their counsel, right? And they can display the wisdom of God in the relationship with you and that offender. And then that poses our final question. What if my offender won't meet with us? What if my offender won't meet with us? Well, you have a variety of responses. And it may be a mix and match. Uh, the first thing you should do is pray. right? You, you can't change that person's heart, but you know who can. Our God. The one who softens hearts, making them tender and responsive. If you pray for that individual, that they might just meet with your mature believer. And with that, maybe that prayer needs to also have a little bit of your repentance in there. Maybe you're not blameless in that dispute. In fact, you probably aren't. And so uttering a prayer of repentance is actually probably a really good thing that you go into that dispute fully aware of how you have maybe wronged that person. Second, you could be wronged or defrauded. I mean, Paul makes that pretty clear in this text, doesn't he? That if it comes down to the reputation of Christ that you would not bring disrepute upon the name of Christ, depending on who's watching. So maybe you might just need to be wronged, be defrauded, looking to Jesus, looking at Him on His way to the cross, and being encouraged that you're not alone in that. Third, and this comes straight out of the Proverbs, overlook the offense that there's some offenses that can be overlooked and possibly should be overlooked if you want to be wise about it. Is is, is their behavior just a flare-up? Not to say that it's right, but I mean, if there's not a pattern of them offending you, then, then maybe it is something that you can overlook. Maybe it's something so small, so minuscule, that you can actually give them the benefit of your doubt and overlook the offense and just move on fourth uh, keep the dispute quiet don't gossip about them don't put them on blast in front of all your friends about how they wronged you don't slander them right be slow to anger be slow to speak and quick to listen wisdom would have us to do something like that sometimes and then above all prioritize the gospel And this is something we looked at weeks ago. That when we make it a point and a priority to lift high the gospel and keep that the most important thing in our lives, everything else finds its, and everyone else, finds its proper place. Isn't that what Jesus says from the Sermon on the Mount? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That everyone and everything finds its proper place when you prioritize the gospel. When it comes to disputes, we must seek justice in the church because we have all benefited from the justice of our God. That's the common ground. We are all in desperate need of the gospel. And such were some of you. Indeed, we were wise. We were and are being sanctified and we were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God.